Engaging presentations on the most urgent problem of our day and what you can do about it. Now, the End Abortion Podcast by Priests for Life. Well, good morning, friends. Father Frank Pavone here, National Director of Priests for Life, coming to you live from our Priests for Life studios. We're doing some early morning broadcasting uh, now. You know, my schedule is so crazy, and I always want to uh, come to you as frequently as possible. Of course, we have the Mass uh, each day. We have my Praying for America program at night, but I wanted to have more of these opportunities to uh, just sit with you and talk about pro-life matters because there's a lot to talk about. And so we are experimenting with uh, a little morning time slot Uh, to see uh, how many of you can tune in and join me for a little while. We'll go for about uh, 30, 30, 40 minutes, 45 minutes to uh, talk about some important things. And one of the most important things in the pro-life movement right now, of course, is the Supreme Court decision coming soon in the Dobbs case. I want to examine one aspect of that case with you today. We've examined loads of aspects of this case. And let me refer you right away to supremecourtvictory.com. That is the special website on which we summarize this case, bring you the documentation and the briefs in the case, and already have a multitude of video programs educating uh, the public on the arguments in the case, talking with some of the key attorneys involved with submitting briefs in the case, and uh, helping us to understand what implications this has for the unborn and, more widely, for America. Today, we're going to look at one specific aspect of this case, and uh, I want to invite you to uh, bring me your questions and comments as we go through this. I can see them on the screen over here in our studio, and we'll, uh, we'll respond to them. But I want to help you understand one of the reasons that the state of Mississippi, now you remember this Dobbs case is built on a law that Mississippi passed protecting babies in the womb starting at 15 weeks. Now that's not a, an extraordinarily high Uh, level of protection because most of the countries in the world protect babies even earlier than that. You go back to, you know, you look just at the European countries, it's usually more like 12 weeks that they start protecting these babies. And we're talking, by the way, about 15 weeks into the pregnancy. So that's measured by the last menstrual period. So the development of the baby at that point, if you measure it from fertilization, is actually 13 weeks. Just a little point to keep in mind. That is that gives the 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 mother thinking about an abortion a whole lot of time uh, in order to quote unquote choose, even if somebody erroneously uh, thinks that there is such a thing as a right to choose an abortion. Of course, there isn't morally speaking, but if you believe that there is, that's certainly plenty of time to make that choice. So the law in itself, when you compare it to laws worldwide on abortion, gives a very long amount of time in which the baby is not protected and the abortion would be legal. But starting at 15 weeks, Mississippi said, no, we're going to start protecting them. And they knew full well that this was against what the court has been saying for 50 years, that you can't protect these babies prior to viability, which at the time of Roe was about 24 to 28 weeks. And um, 
now in medicine, medically speaking, it's more like 22 weeks. The state was therefore pushing against the court, challenging uh, the court. It's like sort of like you tell us where in the Constitution uh, it says we can't protect babies at 15 weeks. Okay, and the court took them up on the challenge. The court took them up on the challenge. Now, the United States is only one of a handful of countries that allows abortion throughout pregnancy, as far as federal policy goes. States, various states, cut it off like at 24 weeks. Some have even gone earlier than that. And uh, and and the, the 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 countries that allow abortion to the same extent that the U.S. does are countries like China and North Korea. Our neighbors to the north in Canada don't have any law on abortion, so they uh, allow it too, uh, and also Vietnam. Now, what I want to look with you at today is one of the arguments being made to the Supreme Court as to why Roe versus Wade should be reversed. Not only that Mississippi's law should be recognized as constitutional, but also that Roe v. Wade should be reversed. Let me uh, go to the board. I have the whiteboard here to help us explain some of the uh, concepts I want to walk you through. So let me go over there and start by putting up here. Okay, so you know Roe v. Wade. And to understand the Dobbs case, we have to understand Roe v. Wade. 1973 legalizes abortion throughout throughout pregnancy and throughout the United States. Now, that was not the only abortion decision that the Supreme Court made. The Supreme Court has ruled on abortion since then dozens of times. There are dozens of cases dealing with various aspects of abortion and its, quote, legality, dealing with various... Um, uh, disputes, for example, about funding abortion or about how much the states could regulate abortion and so on. One of the key cases out of these dozens that has come down since 1973 was in 1992, the Casey decision. So it was Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Now this was out of Pennsylvania. Casey being the, he was actually a pro-life Democrat, the governor of Pennsylvania, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. His son, the senator, hasn't done so well in following his pro-life example, by the way. Um, so, 1992. Now, that had to do with a state law, okay, that was passed in Pennsylvania that had five provisions to it. Informed consent. If someone's going to get an abortion, they should be told what's about to happen and consent to it. Well, that kind of makes sense for any medical procedure, right? Parental consent. A minor age daughter is going to get an abortion. Don't just do it. Get the consent of her parents. Maybe they don't even know she's looking. Maybe, maybe they don't even know she's pregnant. Reporting requirements. Okay, it's, a, it's important for the state to be accountable. So they had some reporting requirements that they wanted to put into the law. Definition of medical emergency. Now, if you say, oh, abortion, as the court did say way back at the time of Roe and its companion case, Dovey Bolton, 
if you say, well, abortion needs to be allowed in cases of health or in cases of a medical emergency, the problem is that it's defined so widely, oh, she's too young. Oh, well, that's a health problem. Oh, she's nervous. She's emotionally distraught. Oh, that's a health problem. Well, yeah, you can make that argument in a general sense of the term, but that's just the point. It's such a general sense of the term that uh, it, it's the exception that swallows the rule. So what Pennsylvania did is, oh, let's narrow this down a little bit, uh, and let's specify that you're talking about a major irreversible damage physically to a major bodily function, some, you know, get more, more restriction of the definition. Okay. And then the fifth provision, spousal consent for an abortion. The husband would have to consent to the abortion of his wife. The Supreme Court in Casey looked at these five things and they were asking the question, is Pennsylvania acting constitutionally here? Is it consistent with the Constitution to have these five provisions? And you know what they said? Yes, informed consent. Nothing wrong with that. It's constitutional. Yes, parental consent. Yes, reporting requirements. No problem. Def define medical emergency. Why not? It was just spousal consent that the court said no. The court has a very, 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 very bad record uh, when it comes to the rights of the father of the baby in the context of abortion. Now, I give you this background because I want you to start to see what kinds of laws the court has actually upheld under Roe v. Wade since 1973. There are all kinds of other state laws, not in, let's make a distinction now, not Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Let me change the color here give you some of the some of an idea of some of the other kind of state laws. I know many of you are not only familiar with this, but you help to get these laws passed in your own states. So, for, for example, you have outright protection of the baby. Okay. Now, protection of the baby would be, for example, Mississippi's law that had just passed. But what we have uh, uh, seen already also is protection from 20 weeks forward. We see, protection can be based on time or it can be based on uh, some criteria either in regard to the procedure. So, for example, um, a good number of states, as well as on the federal level, have, have passed laws uh, against partial birth abortion. So that's a specific procedure that's used. And um, that has been upheld by the court. You have dismemberment procedures, okay? So you have laws that will say, well, if the procedure being used is dismemberment, literally pulling the arms and legs off of the baby, and that is the most common method used in the second trimester, well then, uh, that would not be permitted under the law. So you have some uh, protection, direct protection of the baby based on the kind of procedure that's used or based on the time frame or based on some other indicator. So for example, the 20 week, well, that's more a question of pain capable. So in other words, um, the legislatures are saying if the baby can experience pain from the abortion, and there's plenty of scientific evidence saying that they do, we're going to not permit it under the law. Another criterion, we saw this in Texas, right, is the heartbeat. If a heartbeat can be detected, and the law would have to define, in, in, uh, 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 may define beyond that what method 
is being used to detect the heartbeat. If a heartbeat is detected, the abortion is not permitted. So you have those kinds of protective laws of the baby. Then you have, let me go over here. Well, actually, we don't have enough room, so let me, let me erase some of this. What you uh, also see in some of these state measures, and again, this is not Casey that we're talking about now, are laws protecting the baby outside of the context of abortion. So, for example, if, uh, and most states have this actually, if the baby is killed because of a car accident, the baby in the womb is killed because of a violent attack upon the mother, is that going to be recognized as a homicide? These are called fetal homicide laws. And in fact, most states have that. Unborn Victims of Violence Act. We even have it on the federal level. A baby killed outside of the context of abortion is recognized as a baby, recognized as a death. So you have those kinds of, of, uh, of laws. Then you have all kinds of other laws uh, regarding the circumstances under which or the requirements by which an abortion can be performed. For example, you have ultrasound laws. So these are laws that um, would require the abortionist to either show the mother the ultrasound or give her the opportunity if she wants to see the ultrasound. And these have passed in a lot of states. And then you have <clears throat> various clinic regulation. Now I'm using that word simply to tell you what the name of the uh, bills are, but these should not, they don't deserve to be called clinics, of course. They're death camps and um, these abortion facilities. But clinic regulation is another whole family of laws, uh, and, and the Supreme Court has had to review these over the years. For example, uh, could, could a, a, an abortion clinic be required to, uh, oh, I don't know, have med emergency medical equipment on hand or, or have the hallways, you know, uh, large enough to accommodate a gurney or, uh, you know, things that you would think are common sense, uh, but unfortunately are not always uh, the case. There are a lot of abuses in these abortion facilities. Making it legal has not made it safe. So you have those kinds of laws. Then you have a whole host of laws regarding funding of abortion. So the Supreme Court ruled early on in this long history of dozens of cases that for the state to permit abortion does not mean the state has to pay for it. The court said early on that it's perfectly legitimate for a state, for the federal government and for the um, uh, state government, it's perfectly legitimate for them to say no taxpayer dollars are going to go for this procedure. And you find this is very popular with the American people. It's one thing to say abortion should be permitted. It's another thing to say I'm, I'm willing to pay for it uh, for somebody else. So uh, I'm going through this because what I'm about to explain about the Dobbs case requires you to understand a little bit about uh, the different kinds of laws that the states have been passing regarding abortion. All right, so keep that in mind, and then let's look at the question. There are many reasons in this whole Dobbs case, all right, that the Supreme Court is being told by Mississippi and by groups like Priests for Life who have submitted briefs to the case, and there's dozens and dozens of groups that have submitted briefs to the case, 
why the court should overrule. See, we're being asked to do two things. Uphold the Mississippi law, okay, 15 weeks protection for the babies. And secondly, reverse Roe and Casey, too. Because remember, as I just explained, Casey was a, um, a key decision since Roe, not only because it upheld those state provisions, but in doing so, it reaffirmed Roe. Many people thought at the time that Casey would reverse Roe, but it actually upheld the most of the Pennsylvania law and upheld Roe v. Wade. However, they changed some things about Roe v. Wade, and that gets to the point where I'm about to, to that I'm about to explain. One of the reasons, one of the arguments that the court is uh, that the court is being given by Mississippi and by the rest of us is that the standard that we have gotten from the courts as to how to evaluate whether a state law, like the various types that I've described, is constitutional or not, the standard that the court gives us to evaluate that is too confusing. The word that is used is unworkable. If the court looks at the decisions that it has made, and decides later on to reverse its own decision, like we're asking it now to do, to reverse Roe v. Wade, one of the things it looks at is the workability of the standard that it is presenting. Now, what do we mean by, by, by standard, by the way? Okay, if you look at this word standard, what we're saying is what test does a law have to pass? Okay, what kind of analysis, what kind of questions do you have to ask that law? What kind of test does a law have to pass to be considered constitutional by the courts? You understand what we're saying? And what kind of standard is used depends on what kind of right are, is at issue in that law. So the so-called right to abortion that Roe v. Wade brought about, not by our elected lawmakers, but by judicial fiat, okay, a raw exercise of raw judicial power, as uh, one of the dissenters in Roe uh, described it. If it's considered to be a fundamental right, then the standard for regulating it is very, very high. If you consider like the right of freedom of speech, for example, can the government restrict your right of freedom of speech? Can the government even restrict your right of uh, freedom of religion? The answer is yes, but under the highest scrutiny as it's called. So the standard for fundamental rights is called strict scrutiny. Now we were we went through this here at Priests for Life in regard to our religious freedom. 
when the government told us under the Obama-Biden administration that we had to provide coverage for abortion and contraception in our health care plans. And we said that's a violation of our religious freedom. And we brought it into court and the courts applied strict scrutiny saying, well, you can't restrict their fundamental right unless you are pursuing a compelling interest by the state and what you are doing with this law or this regulation is the least restrictive way of accomplishing your compelling interest. So you see what we're saying? They've got to have a really good reason for doing it, or for restricting it, and they've got to restrict it to the least extent necessary to pursue their objective. Okay, that's called strict scrutiny, and that applies to fundamental rights. So, freedom of speech, obviously a fundamental right. Freedom of religion, obviously a fundamental right. And other fundamental rights are outlined in our Bill of Rights. The question is, is abortion a fundamental right? The other side would like to say so. And the court has somewhat said so. I mean, basically, the, it, it, since Roe v. Wade, the strict scrutiny in those earlier years was applied. But I have to tell you, when you really study this, it wasn't really emphasized repeatedly and strongly by the Supreme Court. It's only a couple of times that they came out and said that this was a fundamental right. The other side is trying to say it all the time. I mean, according to Planned Parenthood, I mean, abortion is a more fundamental right than, than life or than speech or than religion or than anything else. Bottom line is things have changed. Let me uh, give us some more space here. Things have changed. When the Supreme Court, let's go back to Casey, when the Supreme Court in 1992 passed the Casey decision, it threw strict scrutiny out the window in regard to abortion. No more strict scrutiny for abortion. In other words, it changed the standard of review. It changed the rules for how the court would evaluate whether a state law on abortion is or is not constitutional. Now, the lowest level, if you want to use that term, the easiest test, all right, for a, a, a law about anything is called rational review. It's not that the court needs to agree with it, but that the court needs to simply find that the state had a, a good reason for passing the law. In other words, that they're, they're, they're pursuing a good objective. And, you know, that objective, the law is rationally related to that objective. It's, 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 a, it's a basic standard. The, court, the state is not acting irrationally. Rational review. This is actually what we're looking for in the, in the Dobbs case. We want the, we want the court to put abortion back onto the same level as other procedures and other activities where there's simply a rational review test and that's it. You know, if it's rational, it's going to be constitutional and stop giving abortion some kind of exalted constitutional status. You see, if you give abortion some kind of exalted constitutional status, which is what the court has done, then it's harder for the state to pass any of those kinds of laws that I was showing you because they have to jump through more hoops. They have to reach meet a higher bar. So 
in between here, in between strict scrutiny for fundamental rights and rational review for just about every other activity, you've got various forms of intermediate scrutiny. In other words, it's not enough that the law is rationally related to a, to a, a state interest. Intermediate scrutiny requires uh, that the law go through a couple of other hoops. And that's, this is where Casey came in and established a new standard for abortion, which we have to this day, called undue burden. If a law, here's what they said, if a law presents a substantial obstacle to women getting abortions, it's an undue burden and is unconstitutional. Now, what do you notice about that? The first thing that should come to mind when we, when we listen to that is, and I'm just going to write it here, because it's a logical question. What should be considered substantial and what should be considered undue? Do you know? Is it self-evident? Is there perhaps some kind of guidebook that the judges can look at. Because remember, when the Supreme Court says something like this, here's what we have something we have to understand. There are there it is establishing a precedent. Okay. Again, let me just make a little room here. And a precedent means something that the court has already decided before. Stare decisis is a Latin term, which means basically means standing by the things that have been decided. Okay, something's been decided, let's stick with it. Okay, stare decisis. And it's a basic important principle of the way the courts deal with issues. And precedent is vertical and horizontal. What do I mean? There are courts, federal courts and state courts, underneath the Supreme Court. Supreme Court is supreme. Then you've got the appellate courts, then you've got the district courts. That's on the federal level. Then you've got the state courts. So vertical precedent means that the lower courts have to listen to what the higher court said on a particular issue. They have to apply the standard. Remember, we we're talking about standard. They have to apply the standard to the cases that they get on the same issue. So there's always Brothers and sisters, there are always cases percolating in the court system, the state courts, the federal courts, on abortion. At any given time, there's a whole array of cases being considered. So these judges are looking up, looking vertical, and saying, okay, what has the Supreme Court said on this issue that I'm supposed to decide in front of me right now? And they have to apply the precedent. Even if they don't agree with it, they have to apply it. They can criticize it, but they still have to apply it. And by the way, no precedent has been more criticized more frequently, more substantially than Roe versus Wade. None. By judges, we're talking about. In the other federal courts, they're like, their hands are tied and they're like saying, oh, I guess I have to apply this. But you know what? This is wrong. This doesn't make any sense. 
horizontal precedent is the Supreme Court itself looking back at its own decisions. Do they have to follow their previous decisions just like the lower courts have to follow them? The answer is no, because they're on the same level of authority. If they pass the decision in the past, they can undo it today. So horizontal precedent, the Supreme Court can change its decisions in the past, and it has done so numerous times. But let's go back to this. So they give us this standard of undue burden. You can't put a substantial obstacle in the, in the way of women getting an abortion. What in the world is undue? What in the world is substantial? And what the, 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 the word that should come to mind here is subjective. Again, is there some kind of a guidebook that the judges can use to say, okay, let me look at the list of, of, of uh, circumstances, the list of descriptions of what is undue or what is substantial. No such guidebook exists. Is there even a definition of what this means? No such definition exists. And this is where we go back to the original concept that I am uh, explaining to you here today. One of the reasons that Mississippi and other uh, groups that have submitted briefs in this case is saying to the court, listen, you've got to throw Roe v. Wade out the window. You've got to throw Planned Parenthood versus Casey out the window. Is that the standard that you've given us? Now, these are judges talking, okay, primarily. The standard that you've given us in the lower courts, even the standard you've given yourself, to deal with this issue is unworkable. Now, let's give some evidence of that. Besides what I already said about the fact that there is no definition to undue burden, and there is no objective measure. It's subjective. One judge thinks something is a substantial obstacle. The other one says it's not substantial. One judge says it's an undue burden. The other one says it isn't. And you have that disagreement not only among the lower judges, but among the Supreme Court justices. Let's look at Casey itself. Casey substantially changed Roe v. Wade and actually overturned two of the other abortion decisions that had come previous. Akron, which was in 83, Thornburg, which was in 86. And <laughs> Casey comes along in 92. And says, well, you know what? We were wrong in Akron in 83 and Thornburg in 80. So we're going to change that around. So you see, the court has not been consistent in the way it evaluates laws on abortion. And in Casey, you had a plurality. It was, it was split up in a weird way. We don't have time to go into it in detail. But you had Justice, remember Justice O'Connor, uh, Justice Souter. And, of course, we remember Justice Kennedy, okay? They were the plurality, you know, going uh, along with this or, or, or uh, giving us this undue burden standard, okay? So, fast forward to the year 2000. There was a case that came before the Supreme Court out of Nebraska called the Stenberg case. And that had to do with partial birth abortion, where the baby is killed in the birth process. 
The Supreme Court struck down that law, saying it was unconstitutional. The Casey decision, of course, was controlling here, okay? The undue burden standard. Guess what? Kennedy said it was okay under the undue burden standard, and O'Connor and Souter said it was not. The very standard that they gave us to interpret whether an abortion law is constitutional or not, the very standard that they gave us, they disagreed on how it applied to the law in Nebraska on partial birth abortion. Furthermore, you go seven years after that, in 2007, at that point, not just Nebraska and various other states, but the federal government, the Congress had passed a ban on partial birth abortion. President George W. Bush signed it into law. The Supreme Court took up the challenge to it. And they said, you know what? The ban on partial birth abortion is okay. It's constitutional. Kennedy once again said, okay. Now notice, the Supreme Court now is reversing what it said in, in Stenberg. Kennedy is still saying it's okay under the undue burden. And at that point, Souter is still on the court, and he says no again. Unworkable. Unworkable. You can't have the, if the standard is supposed to mean something, it should mean something. There should be some consistency. You know, people talk about that phrase again, stare decisis. Let the decision stand, right? Standing by the things that have been decided. Latin phrase. Stare decisis is meant to guide the development of legal principles in a way, okay, that is consistent. It's meant to promote consistency in a way that is predictable, in a way, in short, that is workable and reliable for judges and lower courts. What has happened in the abortion context is just the opposite of that. So you want to say, oh, starry decisis, Roe v. Wade has to stay, Casey has to stay. Yeah. In order to achieve what? More confusion? See, that's the argument we're making to the court right now. Why, why do we want those decisions? Why do we want the undue burden to stay as a standard? Why? Because we want more confusion, more contradiction? Let me give you one more example, and then we'll wrap up for today. And the other example are two of the most recent court decisions on abortion, 2016 and 2020. Two cases out of the Supreme Court, the Hellerstead decision out of Texas and the June Medical out of Louisiana, both dealing with very similar issues. As I mentioned before, one of the kinds of uh, state laws that you have have to do with clinic regulation. Okay. The Supreme Court struck down, struck down, mind you, very reasonable regulations on the abortion facilities for the sake of the health and safety of women. Those state legislatures determined that to preserve the health of women in their respective states, they had to pass these regulations. We're talking about, hey, you have to have emergency medical equipment. Hey, you have to have uh, admitting privileges. The abortionist should have admitting privileges at the nearby hospitals. 
et cetera, et cetera, things like that. Things, again, that many people would think are in place already. The Supreme Court looked at these laws, and they said, no, they're not constitutional. I'm going to bring up two problems here. Number one, these decisions were not consistent with one another. Only four years later, the June medical case changed some things that the court had said four years earlier in the Hellerstead case. And secondly, to take just the June medical, let me just give you an example, again, of how unworkable, how inconsistent, how confusing the standard is that the court is, has given us over all these decades and that the pro-abortion people are saying, oh, you got to preserve it. Oh, you got to preserve it. Oh, it's precedent. Oh, it's, it's, it's stare decisis. Oh, we got to keep it. Oh, we got to keep it. Oh, it would be terrible to get rid of it. But it's too confusing. Five justices agreed on the outcome of the June medical case but, get ready for this one, those five disagreed on the meaning, on the meaning of the Casey decision, the undue burden standard, the precedent, upholding Roe and being used now to apply to abortion cases, to try to use it. Five justices agree on the case, but they disagree on what Casey meant. Now, also, five justices in this decision agreed on what Casey meant, but disagreed on the outcome of the case. How's that for clarity? Consistency. How's that for predictability? How's that for a clear, fair, objective standard? When you have a standard that leaves the judges scratching their heads, and again, like I say, there's been no decision more criticized than Roe v. Wade and together with it, Casey. When you have a standard that is so confusing the judges are scratching their heads saying, well, is this law an undue burden or is it not? I don't know. How do those cases end up getting decided? What the judge does or doesn't like. Because You've left them with not much more than that. And this cannot be the way that we deal with the issue of abortion or any issue that comes before the courts. If a state cannot even require that an abortionist have certain credentials or that a clinic have emergency medical equipment, well then, the bottom line is that the states, under Casey, under the undue burden standard, the states are not being allowed to pursue their interests. What I, and I'll explain this 
I'll go back to my seat and explain this. The states are not being allowed to pursue their interests. Let me just make this final point. I'll go back to my chair. One of the reasons the abortion debate is so difficult in our country is that Americans recognize there's a value to life and there's a value to choice. And in abortion, the two are in conflict. Do I have the choice to end a life? And the court, by the way, has acknowledged that it is ending a life. This is the only time that the court, and this is one of the arguments in the Dobbs case, this is the only time that the law, the Supreme Court, has permitted the purposeful termination of human life. But the court has said in Roe and in Casey that the states have an interest. Now, when we say the states, by the way, we mean the legislatures on the state level, and also we mean the federal Congress. Uh, 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 the courts have said the states have an interest in the protection of that life in the womb, in the protection of the health of the mother, in the protection of the integrity and reputation of the medical profession. But what we're seeing here, when a state under the undue burden standard of Casey that we're supposed to say is, oh, well, let's keep this, this is good, uh, cannot even regulate its abortion facilities in these basic ways, they're not being allowed to pursue those interests. The court, in other words, the court is stepping on the gas and the brakes at the same time. They're saying, oh yeah, you can protect these babies, but you know, we're not gonna let you uh, um, uh, pass laws you know, at 15 weeks, protecting them at 15 weeks like Mississippi's trying to do. Oh yeah, you can pursue the, you have an interest in pursuing the health of women, but we're gonna strike down your clinic regulation laws. Not even agreeing among ourselves what Casey means, but we're going to strike down your clinic regulation laws. This is a farce. And what we're saying to the court in Dobbs is, hey, guys, you know, whatever standard you've given us, whatever it means, it's not working. It's not doing what stare decisis is supposed to do, and that is to lead to a consistent and predictable development of legal principles in our jurisprudence in America. Friends, I've gone into some depth here on just one of the arguments at, at issue in the Dobbs case, but I hope that you can follow this, understand it in, in basic layman's terms, uh, and let me just summarize it again in one sentence. We are saying to the Supreme Court that Roe and Casey are confusing, and they do not provide the necessary kind of guidance for the courts to resolve the abortion issue. They don't. Leave it, what's the alternative? Leave it to the lawmakers. Because the lawmakers have tools that the courts don't have. The lawmakers have all kinds of hearings and they get input from witnesses and they can amend the law and they can have hearings and they're closer to the people and they've got the authority, frankly, from the Constitution to start passing laws in regard to not only abortion but so many other things in our lives. So I hope that's helpful to you. SupremeCourtVictory.com is where you can go to uh, really delve into the Dobbs case and also see the national prayer campaign. And we'll close here in, uh, uh, in prayer for this case. Uh, go to SupremeCourtVictory.com regularly and we'll be intensifying our educational efforts 
between now and when the decision comes out, stay with us for understanding this decision. Bring other people to us. We have a brochure, by the way, a brochure, 10 points to understand about the Dobbs case. You'll be able to see it there at SupremeCourtVictory.com and order it. Uh, stick with us, friends. We're right in the midst of this case, and we'll be able to give you uh, an understanding of what the ultimate decision is going to be and how that impacts the pro-life movement and how we build on that. So let's pray. Lord, we ask for victory in the Dobbs case. We ask for an end to Roe v. Wade and Casey and all the confusion that these decisions have caused in our court system and in the general public. Lord, we ask that the states will be able to pursue the interests that the court says they have to protect the babies, to protect the mothers, to protect the medical profession. And Lord, give us victory in this case and give it to us soon. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, friends. Stay with us for our broadcasts. And thank you for joining me this morning for a little while. We'll talk to you again very soon. This has been the End Abortion Podcast. To learn more, to help end abortion, and to connect with us on social media, visit endabortion.net.